Well, it certainly is a joy to be back here again today. Uh, some of you uh, perhaps are unfamiliar with my accent. I live in North Carolina, but I wasn't born there. <laughs> I was born in the little country of Wales. Welsh people have their own prince. The oldest son of the reigning king or queen of England is always known as the Prince of Wales. One of the most flamboyant of the princes of Wales was young Edward VIII. They tell us that when he was a young fellow, sometimes he would put on old clothes, slip out of the back door of the palace, get down into the back alleys of London, and uh, find some undesirable friends. One day he was playing with the dirty, scruffy little fellow he'd met, a young fellow with a dirty face, rags and tatters for clothes, bare feet. The little cockney lad had no idea who his illustrious companion was. He just called him Ted. As they were playing together, the little London boy said to his new friend, I say, uh, Ted, do, do you see that policeman over there? Do you think you could hit his hat off? Uh, well, they had a go and then turned and ran, <laughs> hotly pursued by the long arm of the English law. Uh, presently, the policeman caught up to the two fellows, pulled out his notebook, turned to Edward and said, All right, son, what's your name? He said, I am the Prince of Wales. The policeman said, none of your lip, young fella. Who, who, what's your name? He said, I am the Prince of Wales. The policeman said, look here, son, it's a serious offense to molest a police officer. Now, what's your name? I said, I'm the Prince of Wales. The policeman turned to the other boy with his dirty face, his rags and tatters and his bare feet. He said, all right, you, what's your name? Oh, he said, I'm the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> <laughs> so now you know a little bit of British history. <laughs> Perhaps about as much as I know American history. They never taught that where I went to school. We didn't know you had any. <laughs> Uh, we didn't like it anyway, what we read. <laughs> I'd like you to turn, please, to Hebrews chapter 1. I suppose in some ways the epistle to the Hebrews is one of the most difficult books in the New Testament. Part of the problem, of course, are those great warning passages, five of them, one right after the other, stop signs along the highway. And you'd better stop when you get to one. The first one has to do with disregarding the salvation of God. The punishment is spiritual. The second has to do with disbelieving the sufficiency of God. The punishment is temporal. That's that crowd, you know, who could trust God in the Old Testament to bring them out of Egypt, but couldn't trust him to get them into Canaan. And in the New Testament, it's the crowd that 
have this problem, they have saved souls but lost lives. That's the second warning. The third warning has to do with discrediting the Son of God and the punishment is eternal. The fourth warning has to do with despising the Spirit of God and the punishment is judicial. And the last one has to do with disobeying the summons of God and stay hanging around Mount Sinai when you should be on Mount Zion. The punishment is millennial. The best thing to do with those warning passages, by the way, is to mark them off in your Bible, where they begin and where they end. Color them in in red so that uh, you know that they are there and that they are really interruptions in the flow of the narrative. And then read through the entire book of Hebrews at least once, leaving them out. You'll be amazed at the different feel you get for this epistle. That's one of the problems with the book of Hebrews. But in some ways, at the time in which this letter was written, an even more serious problem was the fact that the temple was still standing in Jerusalem. And it casts its shadow upon every chapter, every verse, and every line. King Herod had begun building that temple way back in, a in B.C. 20. When the Lord Jesus was brought into the temple by his mother and Joseph as a little infant to be presented in the temple, they were still working on it. It wasn't finished. When he came back as a lad of 12, and they lost him, you remember, spent three days looking for him. That's one of the amazing mysteries of the gospel story, why they didn't go straight to the temple. I wonder where else they went, all over the city. Why didn't they go straight to the temple? Well, there he was, sitting with the doctors. But they were still working on the thing all around him, banging away and moving those great stones around. They were still working on it. When he came back 18 years later to inaugurate his ministry in the capital, they were still working on it. It still wasn't finished. It was still there. They were still working on it when he was crucified. They were still working on it when Stephen was stoned. They still hadn't finished the thing when Paul was mobbed in its courts. In fact, it wasn't finished, really, until A.D. 64. And three years later, A.D. 67, the war with Rome broke out. And the temple was doomed. Of course, it had been doomed a long time before that. God looked at the thing. He said, you've got it finished, have you? Well, I don't have any use for it. I never have. Not for the past 30 years. It was built by a man who tried to murder my son. I told you 30 years ago I had no use for the thing when I tore the temple veil in two. 
So you finished it, have you? Well, where's Vespasian? Come on, Titus. Where's the Roman army? Come and pull this thing down. Well, this letter to the Hebrews, if we understand it right, the scholars, was written sometime between A.D. 64, when the temple was finally finished after 85 years, sometime between A.D. 64 and A.D. 67. We have to remember that the shadow of that temple lay on every single page of this book was written really for two kinds of people it was written first of all for the convicted Jew that's the Jew who has been listening to the Christians he's been dropping in at the local church and he has become convinced by the theology They have shown him Jesus in type and shadow. They have shown him Christ in direct prophetic statement. They have taken him to Genesis 22 and Psalm 22 and Psalm 24 and Psalm 69 and a host of other scriptures and he has become convinced by the theology. But unfortunately he is cowed by the threats. They warn him that if he becomes a Christian, they will ostracize him from society. When I was 18 years of age, I was drafted by the British Army into the armed forces and sent of all places on this planet to the city of Jerusalem sent to the land of Palestine, as it was then called, a mandated territory of a still intact British Empire. And I remember one Sunday morning, soon after being posted to Haifa and then right down onto Haifa docks, where all the action was. I remember one Sunday morning being able to get away and I was climbing up the slopes, the lower slopes of Mount Carmel, and down to the left there was a road leading away, and I happened to see just down the road, about 50 yards, a building, and on the outside of the building, it said Gospel Hall. Well, I was raised amongst the Plymouth Brethren folk, so I knew what a Gospel Hall was. <laughs> that was their word for a local church, <laughs> the Gospel Hall. So I went in. And they made me very welcome. I spoke the language. <laughs> and uh, they welcomed me in and accepted me at the Lord's table and uh, asked me if I would care to preach on Sunday night. That's where I learned to preach. In a little Brethren Gospel Hall down a side street off Mount Carmel in Haifa, Palestine. I remember one Sunday night, I'd been having a go at it. I wasn't very good at it in those days. I wonder how they could put up with it. But I remember after the service, a well-dressed gentleman came forward and he said to me, 
Young man, I should like to ask you a question. I said, yes, sir. He said, do you think I should be baptized? Well, of course, at the age of 18 or 19, you know all the answers. And so, brashly, I said to this gentleman, well, what does the Bible say? I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> oh, he said, young man, I know what the Bible says. Then I said, why don't you get baptized? Ah, he said, you don't understand, young man. I'm a Jew. And I'm a secret disciple of the Lord Jesus. I love the Lord. But I'm a secret disciple. And he said, you know, my family can live with that. They don't mind me being a secret disciple. But if I was to get baptized, well, then that would be a different story. I should be excommunicated from the synagogue. I would be ostracized by society. I should be regarded as one already dead. They would put my name in the obituary column. My wife would be regarded as a widow. My children would be regarded as orphans. And I would have no job, young man, because a dead man can't work. I should be considered as one already dead. Do you think I should be baptized? Well, that was the problem that faced the first century Jew. This convicted Jew, convinced by the theology, cowed by the threats. This book was written for him. And it says to him, let us go on. It says to him, don't you dare go back. Don't you dare go back. If you go back, if you go back to Judaism, if you go back to that Christ-rejecting, Christ-crucifying religion, if you go back, it will be impossible ever to renew you again unto repentance. Let us go on. It was written for him, you see. And that means it was written for all kinds of people coming out of a Christ-rejecting religion to Christ and to, who have to face the pressure to come on back. Don't you dare go back. But then you see, this book was also written for the converted Jew, the man who has paid the price, has been baptized and taken his stand on resurrection ground. But now he is ostracized by society. He wanders as a homeless stranger across the face of his little world. He is banished from the temple. And there it stands with 1,500 years between temple and tabernacle of continuous history. 
1500 years of teaching and tradition of singing services and sacrifices, fast days and feast days, 1500 years. And he shut off from all of it. And he wanders the streets alone. He has suffered the loss of all things. And there's that magnificent temple, all gleaming gold and polished marble. And he hears the sound of the trumpet for the evening sacrifice, and he sees the people surging towards the sanctuary, and he feels his heart tugged and drawn back, the nostalgia of it. it it's all part and parcel of his bringing up. And it's woven into the fiber of his being. He has to meet now with other like-minded believers in holes and hideouts and dens and caves of the earth. And he's overwhelmed by nostalgia. This book was written for him. It was written to say to him, Never mind. It's better to be a Christian. And that little word better runs right through this magnificent Christ-exalting book. It's better to be a Christian. It has a better signature. Well, you know, of course, as well as I do, that in olden times, people had more sense than they have today. Nowadays, when you write a letter, you sign it at the end, and people have to read all the way through the thing to find out who it is that's writing to them. They always signed up front in Bible times. It was Paul to this church or that church or the other church it was Simon Peter to the twelve to, to, to this one that one and the other one James to the twelve tribes scattered abroad they always signed the letter first well this one isn't signed you see well I know I think I know why it wasn't signed I have no doubt in my own mind whatsoever that Paul wrote it if he only had the last chapter and somebody said, who wrote this? You'd say, Paul wrote it. Last chapter seems to me some kind of a covering letter. Paul didn't sign it because he had more sense. If he'd signed it, none of the people he wanted to read it would have read it. They hated him. So he didn't sign it. But it's got a better signature. Look who signed it. God. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, it's got a better signature. And it tells us about a better savior and a better sacrifice and a better security and a better sanctuary and a better spokesman and a better standing. Oh, it's much better to be a Christian. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. I say that's better too, isn't it? <laughs> that's better. Hath in these last days 
spoken unto us by his son. Dan Crawford, who was one of the early pioneer missionaries to Africa, following hard on the heels of David Livingstone, sitting one day in the doorway of his tent in the equatorial jungle. And there's a little boy, he's writing a letter, and a little black boy comes up and looks at the strange man writing on that strange-looking stuff, making those odd-looking marks. And he looks at the paper and he looks at the man. And then he says in Ghana, he says, White man, what are you doing? And Dan Crawford explained to him that he was putting his thoughts on paper. Little boy digested the information for a moment and then he said, Oh, white man, he said, I know what you're doing. You're putting thoughts in prison. Ah, no, son, he said. I'm not putting thoughts in prison. I'm setting thoughts free. And that's what God did when Jesus came. For hundreds of years, he had spoken to the fathers by the prophets. Men like Moses and Malachi, men like David and Daniel, men like Job and Jeremiah, men like Ezekiel and Ezra. And it was the word of God, it was God-breathed, it was errant, it was exactly what God wanted said in exactly the words that he chose. It was all of God he had spoken unto the fathers by the prophets. But when Jesus came, ah, when Jesus came, he had a perfect vehicle of expression. And when Jesus came, he was able at last to set free the great eternal thoughts of his heart. That's better, isn't it? God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also... He made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now did you notice the contrast there? His glory, his person, his power, our sins. Was ever there so great a gulf fixed? Was there ever so great a contrast? His glory, his person, his power. Our sins. The brightness of his glory. 
You will remember that when the prophet Isaiah was called to the ministry and he saw him high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. He stood there, conscious that he was a man unclean. And there were the sinless sons of light, the shining ones, the burning ones, the seraphim. There were these creatures whose minds had never ever been tainted by a single sinful thought. Whose emotions and passions had always been for him who sat upon the throne and whose wills were every bit bent to do his will. These glorious beings who hung upon his words and would rush to do his bidding, Isaiah saw them and he saw that these sinless sons of light hid their faces behind their wings. They could not gaze upon the brightness of his glory. You see Saul of Tarsus heading north on the great Damascus road. He's got letters in his saddlebags, warrants from Caiaphas and his crowd to stamp out the cult of Christianity's first stop is Damascus. He's going to make havoc of that church. And all of a sudden, there's that light above the brightness of the noonday sun. Down he goes, flat on his face, his head buried in the sand, blinded by the brightness of his glory. Being the brightness of his glory in the express image of his person, express image, the idea behind the expression express image, the idea is that of a dye impress leaving its mark, or a little more homely illustration, a signet ring pressed into the wax. And every line on the instrument reproduced on the, on the wax. It's the idea behind this word express image. The Lord Jesus. The express image. Of the eternal uncreated self-existing God in heaven. Creator of the universe. The one whom angels worship. Stepping out of eternity in time to be the express image. Of his likeness. Remember once Philip said to him. He said. Why don't you show us the father? I mean. You keep on talking about the father. Well show us the father. Show us the father. You know, when Jesus came, something quite different happened in this world's history. Something that never happened before, something that will never happen again. 
When any other child is born into this world, when any other babe is born, it is the creation of a new personality. It's the beginning of a new life. It's the creation of a new person. But when Jesus was born, that's not what happened. It was not the creation of a new personality at all. It was the coming into this world of a person who had existed from all eternity. And he was the express image of the person of God. So when Philip says to him, show us the Father, show us the Father. He turned to Philip and he said, where have you been? What do you think I've been doing for the past 30 years? That's what I've been doing, Philip. I have been showing you the Father. I have been setting before you a three-dimensional, full-color, moment-by-moment, audio-visual demonstration of God manifest in flesh. God who was manifest in flaming suns and burning stars is now manifest in flesh. So that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. There's not one particle of difference between me and him. What he says, I say. What he does, I do. What he is, I am. I am the express image of his person. So if you've seen me, you've seen him. The brightness of his glory. The express image of his person upholding all things by the word of his power now you see that's the difference between his words and our words our words at best are legislative we say do this do that and uh, Sometimes it's done and sometimes it isn't. <laughs> That's our word, legislative. But his words are not only legislative, they are executive. That is to say, when he speaks, it's done instantly. That's what you have in Genesis chapter 1. Where you read that God said, light be. And the Holy Spirit says, light was just like that that's the word of his power not only legislative but executive light speak light was and nobody to this day can tell you what light is although they know what it does <laughs> you're one of the most mysterious entities in the universe that's the word of his power but then you see that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But it was the same almighty word that chaos and darkness heard and took their flight. The same almighty word. For example, you see him 
and he goes to sleep in Simon Peter's boat. That's the only time in the Gospels, by the way, you read of Jesus being asleep. And instantly all hell was let loose on that lake. Simon Peter was scared half out of his wits. It says the boat was now full. And Peter stood there uh, in, in, in that boat and it was awash with water. What happens to a boat when it's full of water? Goes to the bottom, doesn't it? Not that one. <laughs> no water can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean and sea and sky. Simon Peter comes wading through the water. He puts his rough fisherman's hands upon the sleeping son of God and he shook him awake. And all oh, the impertinence of the man, he said, carest thou not that we perish? And the Lord Jesus stood up. And he looked at the heaving waves. And he listened to the howling winds. And he said, be still. And there was a great calm. That's the word of his power not only legislative but executive you see him one day as a leper comes to him the leper was supposed to stand afar off and should anyone venture in his direction he must cover his lips and cry the leper's cry unclean well this fellow had more sense he decided he was going to come to Christ now he had to risk a few stones thrown in his way. But he's coming to Jesus. And I see him as he covers his lips and he makes his move and he's coming to Christ. A people part for him. There's, there's a path as wide as this room for him to come to Jesus. And if you want to know where Peter is, he's about ten blocks down the road. <laughs> well, he came to Jesus and he knelt at his feet. And he said, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus said, I will. Be clean. That's the word of his power. You see him standing outside the tomb of Lazarus and with a remarkable economy of words, John says he wept. Jesus wept. Do you know why he wept? Well, of course he wept because he was man. He wept for Martha and Mary out of sympathy and out of sorrow. Because he was man. But you know, I have a feeling he wept also because he was God. Oh, he could see Lazarus. <laughs> He's just got his harp in tune. <laughs> and they just pointed out to him his place in the orchestra. <laughs> and he hadn't quite got the feel of his robe yet. And they say, the master is come and calleth for thee. <laughs> and he had to come back down here. <laughs> Get back in those grave clothes. 
Jesus wept for Lazarus. <laughs> Poor Lazarus. <laughs> and the Lord Jesus stood outside that, that fast closed door. He said, roll away the stone from the door. He never does for us what we can do for ourselves. I mean, he could have just snapped his fingers and that door would have dissolved into primeval dust and be blown to the uttermost parts of the universe. But he didn't do that. He said, roll away the stone from the door. And then he stood outside that tomb and he said, Lazarus, come forth. I heard about an orator one time, an agnostic, he was haranguing an audience and he was making fun of the Gospels and he got around to making fun of the story of Lazarus. And part of his rhetoric, he, he said, he threw out this to his appreciative audience, he said, why did Jesus stand outside that tomb and say, Lazarus, come forth? And there was an old man sitting at the back, he jumped up, he said, I'll tell you, mister, why he said that. Because, you see, mister, if he hadn't said Lazarus come forth, every dead man in the universe would have come forth. <laughs> Lazarus, he said, come forth, and he that was dead came forth. That's the word of his power. Not only legislative, but executive. Brightness of his glory, express image of his person upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sin, by himself. Now I'm very sorry to have to tell you this. And I hope you won't think I'm being critical. But if you aren't using a King James Bible, that's probably not in yours. I had a, I, I preached on this some years ago and a lady came up to me afterwards and she said, that's not in my Bible. I said, what's not in your Bible? She said, the words by himself. Oh, I said, isn't it? So is in mine. <laughs> She said, it's not in my Bible. Well, I said, all I can say to you, lady, is that you've been robbed. <laughs> and I said, if I were you, I'd write it back in right quick. <laughs> and I said, if I were you, I'd wonder what else they'd rob me of. When he had by himself, by himself. Purged our sin by himself. A number of years ago, I was in the city of Rome, and a friend of mine who'd lived there for quite a number of years was kind enough one day to show me around the place. And he showed me the cathedrals, he showed me the catacombs, he showed me the Colosseum. And then he said, I'm going to show you something they don't show the tourists. In the city of Rome, there are four churches of major significance in the Roman Catholic religion. One of them is called the Church of Mary 
major. It's the very heart and soul of the worship of the Virgin Mary in the Roman Catholic religious system. It's the very heart and center of it, the Church of Mary. And he said, now I'll show you something. He didn't take me inside, he took me around the outside. And around the corner of the church and halfway down was a crucifix. He said, look at that. And he had to stand back and look up to see it. And there, nailed to the cross, of course, was a, an image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not at all unusual. But what was extraordinary was on the back side of that cross. Back to back with him was nailed an image of the Virgin Mary. That's still there. You can go and see it if you don't believe me. Back to back on the cross. An image of Mary. I bought a copy of the Baltimore Catechism. This, we believe, the official statement of Roman Catholic dogma. I read the thing from beginning to end. And sure enough, that's part of their dogma, you see. They call her co redemptrix by which they mean that she is just as much our redeemer as he is that's a lie she came to the cross you know and he sent her away he said there's your son go home with him John, there's your mother. Take her home. When he had by himself. By himself. When God wanted to teach this to his Old Testament people, Israel. On the Day of Atonement, they had to take two animals, two goats. You know, it often took two in the Old Testament to describe the one in the New Testament. <laughs> they had to have two kings, you see. David and Solomon, because when Christ comes back, he's going to reign first of all as David and put down all his enemies. Then he's going to reign as Solomon, as Prince of Peace. Had to have two kings to describe the one. Had to have two pri priests. You had to have Aaron, and you had to have Melchizedek. You had to have a ritual priest to bring out all the, all the details of the cross, but you had to have a royal priest so that the Lord Jesus could be constituted a priest and carry on priestly functions for his people. You find that very often in the Old Testament. It takes two to describe one. So they had to have two goats. One of them was slain and its blood taken by the high priest into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat. I've often thought, you know, it was a good thing he was told to sprinkle it. He was trembling all over. Could you imagine what it would be like on that one day of that year? And to part the veil and go into the Holy of Holies where God sat in awesome holiness between the cherubim upon the mercy seat. In a darkness and a silence it could be felt. To come in and trembling 
placed the blood upon the mercy seat. Get out as fast as he could. But the other goat, they took that other goat and the priest placed his hands upon his head and began to confess over that creature the sins of all the people for the past year. Six hundred and thirteen commandments of the Mosaic law, every single one of them broken every single day. And that little creature stood there as the voice of the priest went on and on, sin after sin, iniquity after iniquity, all kinds of wickedness, immorality, apostasy, transferred symbolically to the head of that little creature. It seemed as though the list would never end, but at last even that long catalogue of crime was finished. And the priest took a rope and tied it around the goat's neck. And he handed it to a man the Holy Spirit calls a fit man. And he led that little creature away, past the brazen altar, past the wide open gate, past the tents of Moses and Aaron, past the tents of the Levites, tent after tent, tribe after tribe, till at last they reached the very last tent of the very last tribe, then on out into the desert, what the Bible calls a waste, howling wilderness. Deeper and deeper into that desert, into a land not inhabited, further and further away. Every once in a while that man would stop and he'd look back, but he could still see it on the horizon, the camp of Israel, further and further into the wilderness. Until at last, when he stopped and looked back, there was no sign of anything, just sun and sand. He undid the creature and set it free. And then he followed his footsteps back the way he had come. And that little creature stood there and watched him go watched him getting smaller and smaller and smaller until at last he disappeared over the edge of the universe. And there he stood. And the burning heat of that meridian sun beat down upon its head. Its strength was dried up like a potsherd. Its tongue was cleaving to its jaws. There was not a drop of water, there was not a blade of grass, there was no eye to pity, there was no hand to save. It stood there, alone, by himself. Until at last, with one final despairing cry, it fell down and died alone. A 
Have you ever tried to think of the incredible loneliness of Calvary? As he who was the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and who upheld all things by the word of his power when he by himself purged our sins. Out of the darkness came Emmanuel's orphan cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? By himself. When he had by himself purged our sins, oh, blessed be God, <laughs> he sat down, he sat down. The same book of Hebrews says, every priest standeth, but this man sat down. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah. What a savior. <laughs>